Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, November 13th, 2015. Like I'm limping in this week. Yesterday, that that program was an emotional roller coaster. For tuning in or listening to Fighting for the Faith, my name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which: help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open up our Bibles, use sound biblical hermeneutics, good exegesis proper understanding of the biblical languages, you know, it's kind of important, proper distinction of law and gospel, sin, grace, repentance, forgiveness of sins, a Christ-centered approach to Scripture, in order to compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles and apostolates, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says, or if they're twisting God's Word and teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. Now, like I said, I feel like I'm coming limping in today. We're, I'm going to kind of throw the uh, extra light episode for today, and I'll do it next Friday as well, I, you know, and there's a reason for that. Uh, next Friday, I'm going to be on Issues Etc. 24, and I'll be on two hours with uh, Todd and Jeff for Issues Etc. 24 as uh, we work our way through the Gospel of John, chapters 9 and 10. And if you've ever, if you have ever um, heard the uh, the John ten ten verse ripped out of context, you know Jesus said, you know I came that might have life and have it abundantly, you know, and and that's been thrown around as you know somehow akin or a proof text for the um, the prosperity heresy and things like that. Uh, well, we're gonna blow the lid off of that on issues etc. Twenty four next week. Uh, as uh, we work our way through the Gospel of John, chapter 9 and chapter 10. So we got two hours of radio that we'll be doing next week with issues, etc., you know, in their 24 uh, episode. And so looking ahead and looking at, you know, kind of the... <laughs> the bottleneck in my schedule that's created by some of the things that I'm up to. Uh, what I've decided to do is we're going to do a two-part series, this starting this Friday and then ending next Friday, where we're going to be listening to a total of four sermons by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley that he has recently uh, done 
on uh, historical heresies, uh, you know, historic heresies that have shown up in the uh, Christian church. Today we're going to be listening to Sermon 1 on Gnosticism and Sermon 2 on Modalism, and then we'll listen to Sermons 3 and 4 next week on this. And they, they, they are just important sermons. If you, It's important, number one, that you know that the church has faced really nasty heresies throughout its uh, entire existence. And already at the time of the Apostles, uh, Gnosticism had raised its head, so did the Judaizing heresy, and so the devil is not going to let the church alone, and he's always blowing strange winds of false doctrine through the church, and it's we can learn a lot in how we are to address the heresies that are running through our, the church today by how the church has handled it in the past. And so I, I think Pastor Charmley does a fine job of laying all of this out. And so we're going to get right to it. Here is uh, Sermon 1. We'll take a break between Sermon 1 and 2. Here's Sermon 1 on the Gnostic heresy. Our scripture reading this evening is found in the first epistle of John, 1 John and chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. John is writing probably towards the end of the first century. And he is writing, warning Christians about false teaching and encouraging them to carry on with the Lord and to hear the word that God has spoken. So First John and chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk, just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you. Which thing is true in him and in you? Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness, and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. But when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And we trust God to bless the reading of his holy word. Now this evening we are starting what will be a relatively short series, four, maybe five studies on the great heresies. Now, why look at the great heresies? Well, the answer is because they are perennial. That is to say that they spring up afresh in every generation. That very early on in history, in the history of the church, every single possible heresy was taught by somebody. And the really big one such as those taught by the Jehovah's Witnesses, by the Mormons, those that are taught by New Age and so on and so forth. Every single one of them has been taught. Now, of course, we have to start by defining what is heresy. Well, heresy is defined in part by the chapter that we read, the portion of it, 1 John 2, reading from verse 18. Little children... It is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Heresy is false teaching. That overthrows the gospel. False teaching that attacks the gospel and undermines and compromises it. 
And these things don't go away. They come up again and again and again. And they are quite fashionable. Because, of course, the truth is rarely fashionable, but anything that attacks it, there will be some, someone somewhere, someone who may well be picked up by the Daily Mail in lieu of having a religion correspondent and put on their website. Some sort of false teaching will turn up, not just the Mail, of course, other papers as well. And these things are often recombined, brought together, various things cobbled together. Tonight we're looking at the first great heresy which is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. And our text is 1 John 2.20 But you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. Or it may be translated and you all know. Gnosticism is the heresy of knowledge. The idea that there is secret knowledge that people are going after. The Da Vinci Code is probably the most famous piece of propaganda for Gnosticism in the last 20 years. That best-selling novel, the film, did not do so well. I read the book, I never watched the film, but having read the book, I have some idea why the film didn't do so well. There's pages and pages of people talking which doesn't translate very well to the movies. But it was immensely popular. I mean, when I was in, in London studying the LTS, the, you couldn't get on the underground without seeing at least three people in the carriage you were in, even late at night on the Northern Line, reading this book. The early showings, the opening night of the, of the movie sold out in many London cinemas. It was immensely popular. And part of the popularity was that it wasn't... In fact, I think a lot of the popularity was not the storyline, but rather that it made claims about truth and facts and reality. It made claims about Jesus. And effectively it said that the Gnostics were the true Christians. Now, what Dan Brown does in the book is really dealing with a modern reinvention of Gnosticism and trying to make it say things it doesn't actually say. But it's immensely popular. You'll find Gnostic sites on the internet and people saying, oh yes, the Da Vinci Code. Yes, get some things wrong, but read it. Well, what then is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is an umbrella term. It's one of those words like, if you look at the 16th century history, you'll hear people talking about Anabaptists. And there's, there's really no such thing as the Anabaptist movement. There are lots and lots and lots of groups that are distinguished by really the one identifying factor, which is that they all rejected from baptism at the, in the 16th century. And same with Gnosticism, there are lots and lots and lots of groups. There were, and some of them have odd names, there, there's, there's the Sethians, there's the Valentinians, there's the Barbalo-Gnostics, and goes on and on and on. The Cainites, who uh, 
taught the people behind that gospel of Judas thing. And the Cainites decided that all the bad guys in the Old Testament were the good guys. And so they, they rewrote their teaching to match. But there were all sorts of groups, all sorts of teachings. But they all have these three great identifying factors. And that's why we can lump them all together in a category. First of all, they emphasize the transcendence of God. That is, God is so different from us, so other from us, that man cannot have fellowship with him. And there is one very, very large group in Britain and in the world who carry this over from the Gnostics, and they are the Muslims. The Muslims believe that Allah is so transcendent that you cannot have fellowship with him. There are the mystics, the Sufis, who try to have some sort of fellowship, but the vast majority of Muslims, Sunni and Shia, view God as so transcendent, so different from man, that man cannot have fellowship with him. And this really comes out of the Gnostics. Uh, there's no argument that Muhammad was influenced to some extent by Gnostics. So Islam has received quite a lot from the Gnostics. And the idea then is that since God is so different from us, so apart from man, that he can have nothing to do with the world himself. And instead there is this whole load of non-divine, non-eternal, intermediary beings. Think again in Islam, the Muslims believe that it was Gabriel, Jibril, who revealed the Quran to Muhammad. That it was this mediator, because God himself could not come down, could not meet with Muhammad, and so there had to be this mediator, this angelic mediator. And the Gnostics would come up with great lists of mediators, each one a little bit further away from the original God, until at last there was one who could have contact with man. So the first point, they spoke of the transcendence of God, but they did not believe, and they do not believe, in the imminence of God, that is, God with us. They believe that God is a God far away, but not a God near at hand. And then there is a, a matter-spirit dualism. They would say that matter is bad, and spirit is good. And that sin is therefore reduced to being a necessary part of matter. And there are many people who believe that in some way, shape or form, that the problem is, and it's a very easy way to explain away sin, that you say, well, the problem is I've got a body, and if I didn't have a body, I would be perfect and wonderful and good. And so you have the, the modern spiritist movement, the spiritualists, who are completely undiscerning when it comes to spirits, because they say, well, the thing is, they're spirits, so they must be good. But also you have people who talk about the body as a prison, and the idea being that 
you escape from bodily existence. But of course the Bible teaches instead the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. But if you have this idea that matter is bad and spirit is good, then God cannot be the creator. Because the creation is material as well as spiritual. And so if you say, well, matter is bad, then God can't have created matter. So who did? Well, the Gnostics said it was something called a demiurge. Now, a demiurge is a workman. And the idea what this demiurge was created, and they have all kinds of legends about this, that what happened was that one of the, the fullness, the pleroma of spiritual beings called Sophia, fell and gave birth to a demiurge, a being that, depending on which Gnostic is talking, it's either incredibly stupid or evil, or both. But the idea is that you have this being that makes the material universe and traps within it sparks of the divine, which are human souls. I may, again, depending on who you're talking to, they may say, well, it's all human souls. They may say, well, it's certain human souls and not others. But, of course, this then leads also, when it comes to Jesus, to a denial of the incarnation. Because if matter is bad, then Jesus cannot be God-made man. So therefore, they will either hold to some form of what's called docetism, which means it just appeared that Jesus had a body. Now, the, the Muslims have a, a bit of docetism when it comes to the cross. Because the Muslims say, well, Jesus was not crucified, but it was made to appear. That's what the Quran says. Now, what the Quran means by that is anybody's guess. And there are a lot of them. But they deny the crucifixion. They say that it was made to appear. Well, that's docetism. The word docetism comes from a Greek word, dokai, meaning to appear. And, it, and Muhammad got that idea from the Gnostics. And so they will say, well, Jesus wasn't really human. And so you have this idea, and some Gnostics tell the story, that you have Jesus among the disciples walking down a beach. And the disciple looks around, and there's just one set of footprints. Because Jesus doesn't have a body, so he doesn't actually leave footprints. They would speak of Jesus eating and drinking, but not having other necessary bodily functions that result from that. Gnostics had a certain horror of the body. And so they would say, well, he didn't really... Then again, there were some who held to a form of what's called adoptionism, which is the idea that Jesus was a man upon whom the Spirit, the Christ, came when he was baptized, and then before the crucifixion, the Christ Spirit goes off again. And that, what happens in some of the, the Gnostic Gospels, that on the cross he cries out, my power, my power, why have you forsaken me? The idea being that the, the power, the Spirit, has, has gone. And so when you say that the spirit is the spirit is good, matter is bad, you have all of these effects that then come in. And then also, and it's the fundamental point of Gnosticism, it's salvation by knowledge. 
that the whole of Gnostic salvation is this. It is discovering what you really are. At this point, it's a sort of enlightenment, like Buddhism, that you have an enlightenment experience, and, the, and then you discover who you really are, and you're saved by discovering that. And so, of course, Jesus to them, he doesn't come to die on the cross, he comes as a teacher, and nothing more than a teacher. Because all we need in Gnosticism is teaching. And we find this idea of Jesus coming as a teacher comes up again and again and again. The old liberalism, the new liberalism too. Liberalism says, man's problem is that we don't know spiritual facts and Jesus comes to reveal a way of living, a way of a philosophy or whatever. But the idea they have is when he comes to teach. So what do you do with the cross? Well, the cross is an embarrassment. And so you say, well, it didn't really happen. No. It was because he needed to make an end to this earthly show, really, to, to leave this world. And so he chose this method somehow to leave but the cross is an embarrassment to Gnosticism they don't like the cross and again and again we see the offence of the cross because if Jesus is a teacher, why the cross? that's all he does is teach, why the cross? well there's no answer to that but why is it popular? it's popular first of all because it gives a, a straightforward and simplistic answer to the problem of sin. It says the problem of sin is the problem of matter. The problem of sin is that you've got a body. And so you can say, well, it's not really me who sins, it's just this body that sins. And so some Gnostics, they were incredibly ascetic. They were vegetarians... They would starve themselves. Some of them even committed suicide. They would flog themselves, wound their own bodies to show how much they hated the body. And there were others who said, well, the body's not the real me. And so these people known as the Carpocratians, after the fellow who founded Carpocrates, they would just indulge all their appetites. And if it led to an early death, well, you were getting away from the body early. But it reduces sin to the body. Then it's an escape. It says, well, this world is a mistake. This world shouldn't exist. And I need to get back to a spiritual existence that's always been, or that was, that began long before. There are shades of that in Mormonism, with their teaching of the pre-existence. And then there's a certain elitism to it. The Gnostic goes around saying, I know and you don't. Or, I accepted the truth, I know the truth, and other people are still floundering around in ignorance. It's rather like the Freemasons, belonging to a secret society with secret knowledge. But of course the Bible goes against Gnosticism completely. Because the Bible brings us two enormous facts that demolish the heresy. The first is the Creator God, and the second is the Redeemer Christ. 
So first the creator God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible begins. We start with the creator God. And everything else is then built upon it. He created the heavens and the earth. And in the New Testament we find that John opens his epistle, opens his gospel with a very similar phrase. He tells us about the Lord Jesus. In the beginning was the word. And he goes on to speak of what the word did. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him nothing was made that was made. Nothing was made that was made. With, without him nothing. But therefore he created everything. Again Colossians 1.16 now. The probability is that the, the heretics in Colossae were kind of early Gnostics, people who would become, whose teachings would lead to Gnosticism. So Colossians 1, 16, for by him, that is by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. You couldn't, you cannot get any clearer than that. All things, and then Paul gives this great list of what all things means or includes. All things. In other words, he's saying now, when I say all things, I really mean all things. You can't leave anything out that was made. Of the all things that were created through the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the creator. And God is both transcendent and immanent. There is this tendency in theology to go between, in human nature really, to oscillate from one side like a pendulum. It swings from one side to another. And if we think of both sides as errors, and the truth is in the middle, it involves affirming both that God is transcendent, that is that he is separate from the universe, he's not a part of the universe, or the universe is not a part of him, he is transcendent, he is above us, but also that he is with us. That God is involved in the universe. So God is both transcendent and immanent. And you have on the one hand folk who will say the one, and folk who will say the other, but they are both actually true. So we read, God says in Jeremiah 23, 23, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? He's both a God near at hand and a God afar off. And so the psalmist in Psalm 139, David says, Where can I go from your spirit? 
Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. God is everywhere. He is near at hand. He is not far from any one of us. But he is also the God who rules on high, transcendent God over all. He's both, and we must hold both together, not just one side or the other side, but both are true. God is that great and glorious. And the Christian hope is not going to heaven when we die. We sometimes express it like that, but that is not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is something far greater and far more wonderful. It is the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That is how... The ancient church writers expressed it, and that is how the Bible expresses it. So, Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. A new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The hope is to be raised from the dead. John 6, 40, Jesus speaking to those who came to him. He says this, And this is the will of him who sent me. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The resurrection of the dead. It's not disembodied spirits, but it is whole human beings, body and soul, raised from the dead. Now the Bible does teach that when we die, the Spirit goes to be with the Lord. But that's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is the resurrection, so that writing to the Thessalonians, Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians 4, Verse 13, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, that is, died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. 
Therefore comfort one another with these words, the resurrection of the dead. And, the, and then the Redeemer Christ. Christ was genuinely a man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God was manifested in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16. And in Romans 9.5, Paul speaks of the Lord Jesus in the most wonderful way. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, speaking of the Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh... Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. The eternally blessed God took flesh. He is a man, a real man. It's ironic. Dan Brown in his Da Vinci Code says, has one of the characters say, well... The church chose the four Gospels which present a divine Christ and rejected the others that presented a human Christ. But you will not find in the Gnostic Gospels Christ born. You will not find Christ hungering and thirsting. You will not find him growing in wisdom and stature. You will find none of this humanity in, that, in those books. But in this book, the Bible, you will find a man who is also God, the real incarnation, and a cross that has a meaning. He himself, says Peter, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ is presented as a ransom for sin. So that in Romans chapter 8, the apostle can speak in the most marvellous way of that cross. That cross that is not something to be ashamed of, but something to glory in. Romans 8, 3, what, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He condemned sin in the flesh. Christ died for sinners. Christ's death is not something to be explained away, but something to be rejoiced in, in him. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Paul, writing to the Ephes speaking to the Ephesian elders, said to them, shepherd the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood. The cross means something. The cross means salvation. Salvation isn't our gaining knowledge. It's Christ dying on the cross, 
bearing the sins of his people. It's faith in a dying, risen, ascended, coming saviour. Our theology is incredibly important. We need to know what the Bible says. And so we face these heresies and we say, but what does the Bible say? Not what does human reason say should be the case. Human reason is fallen. It's affected by the fall. But what does the Bible say? God, the creator of all. Christ, the crucified and risen redeemer. If you do not have these things, the creator God, and the Redeemer Christ with his blood-stained cross, then you do not have the gospel. But with these things, we have all of Christianity. Christ, for God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. You have an anointing from the Holy One, John says, and you know, the Gnostics word, know, you know all things, for Christ has revealed it to his people. Amen. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills, and when we come back, we're going to listen to sermon number two on modalism. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. Uh, so like I said, Sermon 2 on Modalism. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> I don't know why we have to come to these small group sessions. They're just so boring. Hey, do you find that small groups just aren't that interesting or fun anymore? That's quite literally what I just said. Then we have the product just for you. New from Los Lobos Ministries is Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs. Well, what is it? Simple. Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs are an entire booklet loaded with fill-in-the-blank Bible passages. Aren't we supposed to read the scriptures the way they were originally written? Not if you want to spice up your small group Bible studies. With Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs, you can make every passage be about you. Isn't scripture about Jesus? Only if you want it to be. In our postmodern age, it's stupid to think that such a thing as absolute truth actually exists. Every passage is open to interpretation. Read the example. 
But now that you have been set free from financial debt and have become warriors of God, the fruit you get leads to better sex and eternal life. For the wages of sin are smelly diapers, but the free gift of God is a really good tax return in Jesus Christ our Lord. That was absolutely heretical. Why would anyone butcher scripture like this? Because modern-day Christians like you don't endure sound doctrine. By popular demand, you've appointed leaders in the church who've given your itching ears what they want to hear and haven't looked back since. Ha! Suckers! This is just horrible. If you thought it couldn't get any worse, then you're just as foolish as Naval. We've already expanded the biblical Mad Lib franchise to include alternate Bible translations. That can't be good. You're right! It isn't! We now have Biblical Mad Libs in The Voice, the NIV, the KJV, the NKJV, and, for a limited time only, we have the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation. Wait, doesn't that last one spell? Yes, it does spell fun. Not just fun for you, but for the entire small group. We've even created a Biblical Mad Libs Junior Edition to get the kids twisting scripture from a young age. I would never buy this for my children. Lucky for you, you don't have to. We're handing out free copies to every youth group in the nation. Plus, we're also including a special copy of Elevation Church's The Code Coloring Book for a little extra heretical flavor. You're not going to get away with this. You can't stop us. We're already in control. Resistance is futile. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Down, click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com, write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that heresies are, well, dangerous and send people to hell. And that we're to combat them. 
yeah, you know, things like that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up and you are choosing your rank. Yeah, that's right. You are choosing your rank. And uh, lowest rank is Powder Monkey, and then all the way up to, you know, you got Gunner's Mate, and then you got Quartermaster, and yeah, yeah, there's there's different ranks, and the ranks are based upon your monthly support. It's an automatic uh, payment that comes out, and you decide, whether, you know, the amount that you would like to contribute monthly, and we are currently looking to add 600, or the equivalent of 600 new Powder Monkeys, so that we can continue to further expand our website and the uh, the ways in which we you know minister to and serve the body of Christ in this uh, in these very treacherous uh, doctrinal days if you would so again fightingforthefaith.com click on the uh, join our crew and select your rank and join our crew to uh, automatically support us every month of course if you'd like to give a one time amount you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can do it the old kind of analog way. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you, truly thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is sermon number two by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley on the historic uh, heresies. And this is the heresy of modalism. This is the same heresy that T.D. Jakes uh, buys into. Here we go. Our scripture reading this evening is found in the Gospel according to John and chapter 14. John's Gospel, chapter 14. We are here in our Lord's discourses in the upper room. Him spe- he is speaking with his disciples knowing that he is going to the cross, preparing them for the cross and what is to follow. So, John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. But where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? And yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Do not believe that I am in the father and the father in me. The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, 
or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in the, my Father, and you in, in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus asked and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. We trust God to bless the reading of his holy word. Now last week we began to look, a short series of studies that are called the great heresies, not because of any antiquarian or historical interest only, but because these things come up over and over and over again. The first one we mentioned is Gnosticism last week, the heresy that says that we are saved by esoteric knowledge. This week our subject is what's called modalism. Now, whereas Gnosticism comes in with its false gospels, its made-up stories, modalism is one of those heresies that comes from people trying and failing to understand the Bible. 
Alistair McGrath, the theologian, says in his book on heresy that most heresies are failed attempts at orthodoxy. Now, the Bible is not a systematic theology book. The Bible comes to us, and we must read the whole thing and keep on reading it. And it takes work to bring everything together. And if we take a part of the truth and think it's the whole truth, then we end up making it into an untruth. If you take, as many, many people do, they will take some Bible verses, and rather than saying, and we also therefore must bring in all the other Bible verses, they will take some verses and set them against, effectively, other verses. And they will say, well, our verses beat these verses. Well, no, actually, we must take the whole thing. It's not a matter of stacking up and saying, well, how many verses say X and how many verses say Y? And if more verses say X than Y, then X is true and Y is false. No, the whole Bible must be brought in. And one of the fundamental questions that comes to us when we read the New Testament in particular is what is the relationship between Jesus and God? What is the relationship between Jesus and God? And this is one of those questions that has exercised the church for a very long time. Because Christianity is monotheistic. There is only one God. And yet, Jesus Christ is worshipped and adored as God. It has been rightly said that what's called Christian theology, Christian doctrine, is all about understanding what the Bible says. And in as part of that is the experience of Christians. How the disciples, particularly the early church, the twelve, how they experienced Jesus. Because they were monotheistic Jews. They weren't Greek pagans who worshipped many gods and could therefore just have an, add an extra god to their pantheon. They were monotheistic Jews who said there is one God and one alone. And yet they worshipped, the church from the beginning has worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ as God. Well, how do we understand this then? Well, modalism is one of the earliest errors and to some extent it arose because of the Gnostics. The Gnostics said, as we saw last week, that God is unknowable. That man and God can have nothing to do with each other. They so emphasize the, the mysterious nature, the otherness of God, the transcendence of God, that they basically said that man can know nothing about God. Well, of course... The danger of reacting to that is that you overreact so that man can so you think that man can know everything about God. Well obviously if God is God, if He is our creator, He is greater than us, we cannot fully understand Him. We can know truth about God. 
but we cannot exhaustively know everything there is to know about God because God is infinite and our minds are finite. So we cannot know everything, but we can know something. The trouble is that if you overreact and think you can know everything about God, you then start saying, well, God's got to be completely understandable to our minds. That there can be nothing about God that we cannot understand. Now, the early church always knew that there is one God, but also identified Jesus as God. And so in... Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter writes, Second Peter 1, 1, he says, Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Well, again, the apostle Paul writing, to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5, he puts it like this. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a, ra- a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He's also referred already in 1 Timothy 2.3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our saviour. So you speak of Jesus as our saviour, also God, our saviour. So if Jesus is the one mediator and also the saviour, what does that mean? How do we understand it? What? Well, we either end up going with the heresy we'll be looking at next week, which is, or we can week after next even, which is Arianism, which is of course what the modern day Jehovah's Witnesses teach, that Jesus is a lesser God, is a God, as the JWs put it in their New World mistranslation, or you end up doing what the modalists did. The modalists said, well, Jesus is all that God is. In other words, they they thought, well, you have this unipersonal God. God is one person who reveals himself successively as Father, Son, and Spirit. But the picture they used is this is like an actor in the Roman theatre. The Greco-Roman theatre, the actors wore masks. And so the same actor would play successive parts with different masks on. So if this one person comes in, he's wearing one mask, he's the father. He takes it off, puts on another mask, he's the son. Takes that off, puts on a third mask, he's the spirit. And so they thought that this was just... So they, they said, well, it's fairly easy to understand, isn't it? Praxius was the fellow who developed this. It was about AD 190 in Rome. And Praxius, fighting against the Gnostics insisting Jesus is God, fell into a different error. It's very easy to do that, to lose our balance when we're dealing with error, and to end up teaching the opposite of the error, which is not the truth sometimes, but an opposite error. 
No, there are those who so insist upon the humanity of Christ that they abandon his deity. There was a congregationalist pastor in the early part of the 20th century called Frank Lenwood. And Lenwood wrote a book called Jesus, Lord or Leader. And in this book, Lenwood, who had been a leading man in the student Christian movement, said, the trouble with the divine Jesus is that he is apart from us, so we must have a fully human Jesus. Of course, Lenwood forgot that Jesus is both God and man, fully God and fully man. But on the other hand, you have an overreaction to that sort of thing, which leads to people thinking that they so emphasize the deity of Christ as to forget his humanity completely. There are certain American fundamentalists who, if you speak of the humanity of Christ, they assume you're denying his deity. No, Jesus is both God and man. Fully God, fully man. If you overreact to an error, you can end up in the opposite error. And that's what Praxius did. His intentions were laudable. His intentions were to uphold the deity of Christ. Jesus is God, he said. The trouble is, he ended up denying the Father. He ended up messing up the nature of God. Because, you see, if Jesus is the Father, what do we make of the prayers of Jesus? What do we make of John chapter 17, for example? Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Now, if Jesus is the Father, who is he speaking to? Well, it makes no sense, does it? And you will find that some Muslims will come and they'll say, Jesus is God, well, who was he praying to? Because Muslims, of course, assume a, a unipersonal God, because their view of God is that he is unipersonal. You will find atheists will come and they will say the same thing. And the answer always is this, that God is not unipersonal. What do we make of the prayers of Jesus? Well, the modalist could make nothing of the prayers of Jesus. It has to be some sort of elaborate sham that he's praying to himself. Now, what text do they appeal to? Well, first of all, they would appeal to John 49. Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have, you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? A heart of the modalist at this point. You see, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, because Jesus is the Father. Or again, John chapter 10, and verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Aha, you see, they say. But of course, at which point we reply, he says they are one, but he says, we are one, not I am one. <coughs> that he distinguishes himself from the Father. So, John 10, 25. 
Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, my Father who has given them to me, now, how, if the modalists are right, does that make any sense whatsoever? It makes none, because the modalists are wrong. It's greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. If you take the whole passage, you can see that Jesus is distinguishing himself from the Father. And then the other question comes is, what happened on the cross? Now, the Muslims will come and they will say to you, when Jesus died, well, who was running the universe? Well, the first thing you have to say to them is, well, do you believe death is cessation of existence then? And they will have to say, well, no, we don't. But the other thing is, you, of course, that Jesus is not the Father. One of the, the names given to modalism is Patripassianism, which means... The Father suffered, the belief that the Father suffered on the cross, so that Tertullian, one of the, the early writers who wrote against modalism, accused the modalists of crucifying the Father. But to whom was Christ offering himself? Well, in the, the modalist view, it is the, the one God offering himself to himself. And so they find it very difficult to deal with the cross. But of course, the biblical answer is this, that yes, there is only one God. Monotheism is absolute. It's the basis of Christianity. The Old Testament, we might say, it's a bit of an overstatement, but it's not much of an overstatement. The whole point of the Old Testament is to beat it into our brains that there is only one God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The great confession of faith of the Old Testament, of the Jews, is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one Lord, one God. Again, Isaiah chapter 43, the Israelites, of course, the always running after false gods and again and again God sent his prophets to call them back and you have in Isaiah the great trial of the false gods where God calls upon the false gods to do something because of course they don't exist they can do absolutely nothing and so in Isaiah 43 Reading from verse 10, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, 
and beside me there is no saviour. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. One God over all. And yet at the same time, Jesus is God. Yes, I and my Father are one, he says. Whoever has seen me, he says, has seen the Father. Paul could call Jesus God over all, blessed forever. And we could go on. But of course also, Jesus and the Father are not the same person. John 17, he speaks to the Father. John 10, he distinguishes himself from the Father. John 6, 38. Jesus speaking to the Jews says this, John 6, 38. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, that makes no sense if Jesus and the Father are the same person. Because there can be no distinction of wills at all, if that is the case. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. There is that great distinction made. Or again, John chapter 15 Verse 26, when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit are three distinct, different persons. We read that again in John 14, 16. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another Helper, that he may abide with you forever. There is a distinction made between them. There's also a similarity. There are two words for other in Greek. They are heteros, another of a different kind, and alos, another of the same kind. And the Spirit is spoken of as another of the same kind. So that they are Jesus, the Father and the Son, they are the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they are all of the same kind, but they are not the same person. They are of the same nature. There is one God, one divine nature, but in the one divine nature, three persons, for want of a better word. There is one what, as theologians have put it, but there are three who's. We cannot fathom this, of course. God is beyond our understanding. Of course he is, he's God. God is more than personal, but he is not less than personal. And you see, the, the Trinity, far from being what men claim it to be, a, an abstraction created by philosophy, is simply a statement of what the Bible says. The Bible says that there is one God. The Bible says that the Father is God. 
The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And yet, these are one God, but they are not the same person. And at this point, we stop and we say, well, this is what the Bible says. We cannot wrap our minds around it. We simply accept it as the revelation that God makes of himself. So that if we look at 1 John 2, 1, for example, just to give one of many, many examples that could be given. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. See there the immediate distinction that the Father is not the Son. The Son is the advocate with the Father. The Son is eternal. He ever lives, the writer of the Hebrew says, to make intercession for all those who come to God by him. And then we see in Matthew's Gospel the account of the baptism of the Lord Jesus. Matthew's Gospel and chapter 3. Reading from verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Son is in the water. The Spirit descends upon the Son. The Father speaks from heaven. Father, Son and Spirit manifest at the same time. And therefore... What can we say? Well, we can say that Jesus is God, and yet he is not the Father. God is beyond our understanding. We take the whole of the Bible, and we do not assume contradictions, just because things don't fit with our understanding. After all, when we're talking about who God is, we are naturally talking about the infinite. We are talking about God's self-revelation. Now, of course, we must, in our present day and age, also be very, very careful about one of the fundamental tenets of postmodernism. Postmodernism says that unless you can have perfect, total understanding of something and total knowledge, you can have no true knowledge. Now that's something that as an idea is quite endemic in our culture. And it's false. Because of everything that is, we can have true knowledge. If it were, if it were true, then the scientific enterprise would be impossible. 
then it would be impossible for people to engage in any sort of science at all. Because they say, well, if we can't know everything about this, we can know nothing about this. But we don't proceed like that. We may, know, we may have true knowledge without having exhaustive knowledge. And that is what we have in the Bible. Jesus reveals to us everything that we can know about God. The Bible tells us all that we can know, that we need to know. And it tells us these basic points. There is one God. There is the Father, the Son, the Spirit who are all God. And yet they are three persons. And yet there is one God. And so we marvel and we wonder at this. And we come indeed to the point of Dr. Watts in his hymn, Almighty God to thee, the endless honours done, the undivided three and the mysterious one, where reason fails with all her powers, there faith prevails and love adores. Amen. So what did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.